we always have to watch our back for um, avoiding to being wrong, then nobody will uh, dare to do uh, to do difficult, ambitious things. Because when you enter new grounds, uh, you can be wrong, and you can be wrong for a million reasons. Adriano Aguzzi is professor of neuropathology and director of the Institute of Neuropathology at the University of Zurich. Adriano is an EMBO member and a winner of the EMBO gold medal. The Aguzzi lab focuses on the molecular basis of prion diseases and other neurodegenerative illnesses. In 2016, Adriano was intrigued by findings published by Mao et al. in the journal Science. The paper identified a new molecular player in the pathogenesis of Parkinson's disease. It proposed that the immune checkpoint molecule LAG3 bound pathologic alpha-synuclein and contributed to its cellular uptake and transmission from neuron to neuron. The Aguzzi lab decided to follow up on these exciting, unexpected findings. We spoke to Adriano about what happened next. Welcome to the EMBO podcast. Let's start a bit with how the sausage is made, so the story behind this paper. Um, as it is right now, it reads as a, as a, as a replication study. Um, was that how it started out in your lab? Did you set out to uh, to replicate the findings from Mao at all? No, not at all. Actually, uh, I when uh, Ted Dawson and his colleague uh, published uh, the surprising findings that LAX3 uh, is a receptor for fibrils, uh, for synuclein fibers, we got very excited and... Uh, and actually, my uh, goal was uh, to discover antibodies against LAC3 that might be therapeutic. And uh, in the past several, several years, uh, my lab has established a high-throughput pipeline to discover antibodies against interesting um, proteins uh, in uh, very large human populations. I mean, we are talking... Uh, 100,000 people or 200,000 people. So we have been systematically uh, accruing uh, and uh, biobanking uh, every blood sample that came of any patient uh, who uh, was treated at our hospital uh, and had uh, consented to the storage of the blood. And we have done this for the last five, six years. And uh, so now we avail of a huge collection of uh, blood samples. We also know exactly why the people were in the hospital, what was uh, their medical history, what was their medication. And now we can uh, do um, very rapidly correlations uh, to any biological phenomenon that came up. And of course, we are doing also COVID studies with this. But one idea was, okay, maybe, you know, maybe there is lax 3 autoimmunity and maybe these people are protected against Parkinson's or maybe, and if that is the case, then maybe it's worth cloning the antibodies out of these people and see whether they can be used as therapeutics. So that was what got us really excited about, um, about the lax 3 story and, um, and because we felt that we had a technology that not everybody has, we thought, okay, this is, let's jump on it, let's do it. And um, so that's how how the thing started. And then Mark Emenegger, who was a student at the time and who has set up all these high throughput methodologies, he started to actually look into, okay, I mean, how uh, uh, we need some, you know, we need some controls. We need, we need some neurons that express LAC3 so that we can actually uh, see whether uh, the antibodies bind to the neurons. And then came the big surprise that we couldn't find it. And, uh, and uh, that was a bit shocking. What happened next? 
Well, uh, what happened next was uh, that I really was trying to be careful. You know, uh, you know. Let me uh, point out something that is really important to me. I, um, on the one hand, I think that uh, the um, uh, results reported by the Dawson Lab uh, are artifactual. Uh, there is no way around it. Uh, I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, I said uh, not universal, a bit jokingly, but the fact is uh, the, that these results cannot be reproduced. And uh, now, uh, what? However, at the same time, I really want to say, and uh, this is uh, central to my Weltanschauung as a scientist, is that uh, nobody should be ostracized or demonized for being wrong. I think that, uh, I think that uh, they, this kind of culture of shaming, of ridiculing people for being wrong is the most awful thing uh, that is happening in science and, and uh, it is amplified by the social media and it's terrible and uh, for many reasons, but it's also stifling because uh, if we all ha if we always have to watch our back for um, avoiding to being wrong then nobody will uh, dare to do uh, to do difficult ambitious things because when you enter new grounds uh, you can be wrong, and you can be wrong for a million reasons. And I am absolutely convinced that uh, uh, that Dawson and his people uh, were wrong. Uh, um, in a way, they were wrong for the right reasons. So they were they were wrong because uh, there may have been something, some uh, experimental variable that uh, they couldn't have possibly been aware of, uh, and uh, and I don't know what it is, but uh, that uh, misled them. Now this uh, happens all the time, and in fact, uh, the, the this is the essence of uh, uh, the philosophy that was uh, formalized by Karl Popper, no? that says that in the end, uh, science progresses uh, through mm, through consecutive falsification of working hypotheses. And so you never verify, you never prove a hypothesis. What you do is that you disprove something that was claimed before. And, and in a way, this is what happened here. And, um, and I don't think there is anything wrong with it. Quite the contrary. I think this is exactly how science works. And so, so I really want to point this out. And, and in this context and in this spirit, once we were totally convinced of our data, the thing that I did was to write to Ted Dawson and to tell him, look, Ted, I, uh, we, we have this situation and, uh, and I, I'd be happy to share the letter. But it was really, you know, trying to be as amicable as possible. This is uh, unpleasant, but, um, but there is nothing wrong with it. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, it has happened to me in the past and it will happen in the future. And, uh, and it's a part of doing our business. Uh, so um, so that's, uh, th that's in essence what happened. And in fact, uh, uh, the, um, Ted answered also very cordially and uh, and uh, of course he was not pleased and of course nobody was and uh, and I wasn't pleased either I mean I I, I didn't set out to uh, to prove anybody wrong here and uh, the but uh, but I think that this was handled in a, actually in a very good and very professional way I think that it was a, 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 it was an educational experience for everybody because uh, uh, my co-workers in the lab who did the experiments were originally very angry because they had uh, put a lot of effort into this and it was and the project was slipping away and uh, 
But, you know, in the end, uh, what I think everybody has seen is that, um, is that this was uh, actually successful. I mean, we ended up publishing a paper in Embolic Molecular Medicine, which is the top journal in molecular medicine, as you all know. And, uh, and uh, so, so, uh, so even in terms of career advancement, uh, I think that uh, nobody was really lost anything here. And, uh, and the people realized and, uh, and appreciated that. But before before it got to Ebola molecular medicine, it went through review comments, right? And and I want to I want to read from and, and one of the great things about review comments and and about Ebola molecular medicine is that the reviews are 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 available for the scientific community, as as is your reply to the reviewers and your revised version. And I think one reviewer in particular that people can go uh, either to uh, the early evidence space or to BioArchive and and look at the review comments uh, comments. Um, really had a two-phase response that encapsulated the problem and a bit the solution, uh, which are these new platforms. So the reviewer, who was overall very positive, nevertheless starts the summation on, on the significance of the work saying, these negative findings about, the, about lag in alpha-seen nucleopathies, I'm glad I got to say that, shown in this manuscript, do not provide any new insight into the mechanisms of alpha-seen nuclein propagation. Now, at many journals, traditionally that would have been the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what the editor would have written back and saying, and, and, and it's true, because you are showing that what should have been a new mechanism actually doesn't work, right? And this is an, a very, very uh, important uh, result clinically, and it's an area where really we, we need to advance in basic physiopathology. But that line would have been the end of, of the process in many different places, yep. right? And, so it, and then it, it would have been probably in one way or another uh, repeated ipsis uh, literis in, in the in the in the in the editorial letter, but he continues uh, to later, or he or she, I do not, I don't know. Oops, that's my own implicit bias there. Uh, <clears throat> it's uh, to say the data shown in this manuscript are convincing, and the information is very important in correcting the direction of disease treatment and research. So. That, I think, uh, it's just, if we had didactically uh, paid someone to write a review for, for review comments, we couldn't have done better. It really says, okay, here it is uh, in terms of what we ultimately, not just what the journal wants, but what you wanted, well, how, why you set out in the work, which was to clarify a new mechanism. Um, it, it's not what the manuscript did, but it did hit on something extremely important for the field, right? And so... You were able to, without delay, put this out as, as a preprint. Was it hard to convince um, the first author to, to do it as a preprint and to submit to review comments? Not at all. Uh, my lab uh, is uh, totally convinced uh, about the value of preprints. Uh, there is uh, absolutely no discussion on that. Everybody loves preprints. Uh, we have preprinted pretty much everything that we have published in the last several years. Uh, it's uh, it has been a win-win. Uh, the no no the preprint issue is um, uh, uh, is well very well agreed upon in in my lab. Yeah. And, and one of the other reviewers, by the way, essentially echoed what you said about the way science should function, said science won't progress if we don't find correction mechanisms for wrong conclusions. Molecular biologist Thomas Limberger is the deputy head of Embo Press and the Review Commons project leader. Review Commons was launched in December 2019 by Embo and ASAP Bio. It's a constantly evolving platform, and Thomas took the opportunity to send up a trial balloon. Thank you.
So look, I mean, maybe I can run a, an idea through through you to see what what you think. We we would like to eventually have you know um, all the authors who go through the review process, the review comments review process, have their reports and reply posted next to to the preprint because it, it sort of diffuses disseminates this peer reviewed research very very fast. Um, now it can be a problem to convince authors to do that precisely when the language is abrasive and, and violent. So we were thinking maybe we should have some kind of an appeal process where the authors can say, well, you know, before you put this, this review out, change the language because this is sort of insulting or, you know, the point is so totally wrong that, you know, it, it sort of detracts from the entire credibility. So you, you think it's a good idea to have such a procedure or does it open now a can of worms? Well, uh, um, I think that uh, I think they may not be necessary because in the end, uh, you as the editor are the arbiter. The I mean, I think one thing that Tiago has once told me, which uh, really impressed me because I think he's, he's spot on. I mean, he said, you know, the editor is uh, the reviewer or the reviewers, and uh, mm -hmm. the and that's exactly your role. No, so uh, if you see that uh, a comment uh, is unprofessional, that's where you have to step in, and uh, and I don't think you should wait for the author to complain. You should actually um, either censor the review. I mean, I think this is well within your remit to delete. Uh, parts that you think are uh, unprofessional or not consider the entire review altogether and uh, um, or contact uh, the reviewer. I, I, I don't think uh, that uh, uh, because, uh, you know, the problem with the appeal is that, uh, you know, the fact is that uh, a rejection is a terribly um, uh, uh, yeah, it is emotionally very terrible for every author and this will never change. And I tell you, I've been in this business for more than 30 years now and a rejection hurts as much as it did 30 years ago. It never changes. And there, and there is a reason for that. And the reason is that when we write a paper, we put our blood's heart into it. And, uh, you know, we work like crazy for years uh, and then we write a paper and then when we send it in, it's really, in our opinion, it's a work of art and it's a work of science and it's uh, perfect. And then a total stranger tells us uh, it's not good enough. Uh, and that hurts a lot. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm not saying, I mean, the, the, the editor may be right, but it still hurts. And, uh, the, and that's, why, that's why, as an author, you can't be objective. You know, the, it's impossible. I mean, the author will always find the, the reviews to be unfair. And uh, the, so the appeal process doesn't really work. In the end, it is responsibility of the editor to balance the reviews against the, uh, the claims of the author. And, um, and in the end... Uh, you cannot delegate that. Uh, you have to do it yourself. I think the advice I, I always gave on appeals is people should stop first and think, are, are they appealing something that is factually inaccurate, which could happen yeah. and it could slip yeah. by the editor. Yeah. You know, editors have their own training and something may be uh, in, in a bit adjacent to the field they know best. Or are they arguing uh, with a sentiment about something like significance, relevance yeah. or novelty? 
And even those, of course, can be factually inaccurate. Someone can claim that such and such has already shown whatever, uh, which is not the case. But um, but normally those things don't do well, right? So to discuss uh, taste, basically, doesn't yeah. doesn't go well. But but factual appeals, I, I always encourage people to yeah, to yeah. engage in them. The thing about tone, I think uh, reviewers in particular should be aware of, is that the nasty tone undermines sometimes a very good review. Some some reviews are just nasty, and and then in, and I have the, those have been trashed in the past uh, uh, by many people as having no content. But sometimes they have great content. Uh, but the tone is such that it becomes a discussion about this person doesn't like me. When actually, maybe maybe they hate you, but maybe they hated your paper more, and maybe they were right. But once you engage in this kind of thing, uh, you undermine your your own argument. It it it's, yeah. it gives people a leeway uh, to not discuss uh, the substance of of the problem. Mm. So it it's um. But I I do think one one of the one of the things I like about making reviews public, if not necessarily reviewer identity, which is a completely separate issue, is that um, when when Review Commons did its author survey which I think uh, everyone expected that the main uh, factor of appreciation in authors would be the speed, which, which it did improve the, the speed of publication. But I think uh, quantitatively, most authors complain, uh, com- sorry, uh, remarked that what they actually appreciated was the change of tone in, in the reviews, in part because it's, it's decoupled perhaps from the journals, but also because it's, it's a public uh, process, right? And, 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 and people... I, I never thought much about it, but now that you say it, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, the the tone of the reviews, uh, in, I mean, I have now sent many papers to review comments uh, and, uh, and uh, plan to continue in the future. I mean, essentially, um, I mean, if I have a super... Uh, uh, amazing, exciting finding, and so I may try to go to nature or so, but you know, this happens uh, once every five years, and uh, everything else uh, in my lab goes to Review Commons now. And uh, and you are right, the tone is more civilized than, uh, than in the classical uh, uh, journal-centric review. It is a fact. And, and it's also nice because since your, since your replies are also public, uh, if it's a foolish comment, even if it's anonymous, no one wants to look at themselves online and think, well, I've, I, I look like a bit of a dunce in, in, in this discussion. <laughs> One oh. reviewer of the LAC3 paper, however, said uh, something uh, in the direction, of, yeah, I mean, uh, Aguzzi is quoting a lot of his own papers and this makes it look like he's an expert on synuclein, whereas he has not done anything on synuclein, something like that. But, uh, you know, the fact is, uh, it, he was right. <laughs> so, I, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't really argue. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's also part of uh, I mean a good review can also be a really important part of the paper if we now make them public right I was I was yeah. discussing with a, with a with another colleague um, something that they had posted on on cancer and part of the things that didn't make it into the paper were actually very good uh, hypotheses and speculation on the part of the reviewer that just you know turned out uh, not to be part of the central message but it was an interesting discussion to see. So, so this is all nice. Huh? We have review comments, we have preprints, we, we have also journals like uh, Embomolecular Medicine that, that are super efficient. Uh, I mean, I think your, your paper, Adriano, it, it sort of t- 
took the weekend to have the first decision, revised, tack, tack, tack. It, it went I mean, really it like... It was unbelievable. Like a breeze. I mean, yeah. the speed was unbelievable. I, I, you know, in 30 years, I've never seen anything like that. This was very impressive. <laughs> so so we are all in love with these things. But but the question that is looming now is, um, is who is going to pay for it now and in, and in the future? And I, I, I know that you have uh, thought a lot about that. And maybe one question I'd like to ask is to run your, your lab and you just explained your, your micro high density, micro tighter platform with, with robotics and so on. A lab has to buy equipment, expensive equipment, consumables, you have to access to services, sequencing, oligos, chemical synthesis, um, to research infrastructure, to go to central facilities in the institution, maybe in other institutions, to use public databases and repositories. So there's an entire infrastructure. Now, a lab also needs to communicate the results, right, that others can, can benefit. Do you think that preprint servers, peer review platforms, and maybe even journals should be considered as core part of the research infrastructure by funders? 100%, 100%. And I have argued this in writing as well. I remember a few years ago, I wrote also a piece in Nature arguing that, uh, that uh, journals, but also preprint platforms and uh, initiatives like Review Commons should actually uh, uh, be given the opportunity to compete for funding by at the national agencies, but also ERC and uh, NIH and so on, and uh, I think that uh, the I think it should be a transparent process, and it should be a competitive process, and uh, and uh, the criteria could be for uh, among other things, uh, the obviously the uh, the the features of uh, the web platform, the turnaround time, and so on and so forth, but not the number of jo of papers that are being published because that is what is happening now with uh, author processing fees, uh, the financial financial incentive of the journal is to publish as many papers as possible because if you publish 10 times as many papers you will earn 10 times as much money it can, this is this is the worst possible way of funding scientific publications uh, and uh, because it's all about quantity and not about quality and it is the reason why we have all these predatory publishers so they before uh, uh, before um, open access author pays uh, We de they didn't even exist. The, the, the whole um, epidemic of uh, greetings of the day has started, has taken off uh, with, uh, with, uh, with uh, article processing charges. So I, I think that is really a bad way of, um, of doing open access. But what I think uh, should be done is that in the end, the ERC, the Swiss National Foundation, uh, Human Frontiers and so They are the guys who eventually pay uh, for the publications because they pay the, the labs and the labs eventually uh, pay the article processing charges. So what about, uh, uh, so I think it would make a lot more sense and it would be more transparent and it would lead to better services if the, if the funding agency would say, okay, we reserve now a pot of, I don't know, 10 million euro, 20 million euros. This, this is probably what, uh, the kind of money that we are talking about. Uh, and... Uh, 
and now we allow um, uh, anybody to compete for this pot of money and uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, panels composed of scientists could evaluate and rank the proposals by the journals because we are used to that we are uh, we do competitive funding all the time we are reviewing each other all the time why can't we review the papers uh, the yeah, quality of the yeah. journals and uh, and uh, um, yeah, and then you know Springer might compete, and uh, uh, Embo might compete, and Swiss Medical Weekly might compete, and then uh, and uh, I, I think that this would be this would uh, solve a major problem, which is really the coupling of uh, um, of the financial wealth of the journal to the number of article publishing, which is not only a problem of the predatory publishers, it's also a problem with uh, you know of the ecosystem system so so why is it uh, you know i send a paper to neuron it all happened uh, send a paper to neuron it's uh, um, next thing i hear is uh, yeah great great wonderful but unfortunately it's just below i mean the reviews are great and so it's just below the threshold of uh, significance that we have published in neuron but why don't you go to sell so, to sell reports now the problem is neuron is subscription based sell reports is article processing charges so 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 yeah yeah go to sell report where but just pay us 6000 euros and um, and then everything will be fine now uh, that is a game that i don't like to play and in fact the paper in question it ended up being published in embo molecular medicine which uh, um, so yeah, uh, yeah. So, so i uh, uh, so, so that is another uh, thing where uh, where uh, you know where the big publisher are playing exactly the same game as a predatory publisher there is no difference in the business model there is a difference in quality of the art but the business model is the same and this has to stop yeah no this is a it's a it's a fascinating uh, idea to 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 try to imagine that journals or publishers or platforms could apply to to a competitive grant scheme what what sort of criteria would you see as a scientist as as you know um sort of uh important for for granting such such funds you know what are the attributes that you would look for a, a publisher that should that should obtain such funds. Well, I think that uh, the uh, I, I would say that uh, well, I would say that the scientists, the authors, uh, would be the ones who know best what are the what they want from the journals. And uh, of course, I have some criteria, but I think that uh, these things should really be decided by panels uh, by panels of scientists who are in the end are the customers of the journals and uh, the. And uh, I mean, obviously, certain aspects are clear. I mean, you would want to have permanent records. You want to have stability of your platform. Uh, then you would want to see uh, a, a well-documented reviewing process, turnaround times, uh, searchability. Uh, I mean, a bunch of things. Uh, you know, how uh, uh, how do you deal with ethics issue? How do you implement um, adherence? Uh, to the DORA criteria, I mean, the, to, to the COPE criteria. So, I mean, there are, uh, the, the, I, I would say, uh, many of these things are relatively standard, but then there would be opportunities for uh, publishers uh, to um, uh, to uh, to distinguish uh, themselves uh, to um, to innovate uh, and uh, to um, propose uh, unique propositions like for example i would love to have uh, um, uh, something that uh, yeah, uh, you know 
uh, I would call it an executable type of paper, no, where uh, uh, where uh, uh, the, the where you, rather than being uh, with the usual PDF, uh, you would have some some way of visualizing the figures in a more interactive manner, and uh, and uh, you know the, the, the many things are conceivable that would uh, enhance uh, the readability beyond having the um, the let's say the digital equivalent of um, uh, of a printed paper. And uh, so a competitive mechanism could actually um, uh, enhance the and encourage uh, innovation in this field. You know, a paper in the end, it's a link in the internet. It can be in nature, it can be a blog post, it can be a preprint. And it's, it's fantastic in a way because it allows really this super fast dissemination of everything. Um, institutions can document the research output immediately. Um, individuals can have their blog post and essentially write real-time the experiments they have been doing uh, during the day. Um, scientists can now post you know, important papers that sometimes are, are, are turn out to be wrong on, on preprint. And we are used in, in the past, we had the journals as sort of the final gatekeeper. All, all of these things didn't exist. And so the, the journal, everything was really tight up to the journal. And the journal was the big power, but also the gatekeeper. And now this function of the gatekeeper is sort of taken away or maybe diminished. And it seems that this comes with greater responsibilities by, by others, by individuals and by institutions. How, how do you see that or how do you live that through this, this responsibility? It's really a seismic change. I mean, it's a, it's a paradigm shift. You're absolutely right. The gatekeeping function has been shifted, but in a way, it's not really, it's a consequence of, of what is happening on the internet. It's, it's a consequence of, of the way the distribution of information is changing and really, uh, and uh, it has great advantages, but it has also the, uh, the big drawback that um, authorities undermined and uh, that uh, the diffusion of fake news is uh, is in a way is a different aspect of the same phenomenon no? that uh, uh, that information is being broadcasted received amplified um, uh, without uh, without any gatekeeping and that was uh, in the past uh, was more difficult because it was more expensive uh, the you had to be uh, a, uh, the dictator of a totalitarian state in order to have uh, you know to have everybody broadcasting your messages uh, through uh, you know through loudspeakers and radio and so I mean in, but uh, but unless uh, you know uh, un unless you were Mussolini or so you you wouldn't have the possibility to do that and uh, the and now essentially the crazier the people are the better their chances of uh, of getting through with uh, with this kind of fake news and uh, this applies to science as well it's uh, it's not only politics so in a way i would say to some extent we are the victim of this and uh, the and uh, the argument uh, mostly from Richard Sever, which I think is absolutely correct, is uh, yes, uh, the preprints have all these drawbacks, uh, but uh, don't believe for a second that uh, uh, the peer review uh, protects you automatically from all these things, uh, because uh, the number of uh, uh, 
uh, rubbish papers that have been peer-reviewed is quite impressive. And uh, so, uh, so, so let's not delude ourselves. Uh, it's, uh, it's not like we solve the problem by just by getting rid of the preprints. Well, and there is, there is a, an aspect here that I think doesn't get enough attention, which is that, um, well, people are becoming familiar with preprints and including people outside of science who write about science in, in journalism and policymaking and who have to deal with this. Um, but I think at least within the scientific community, uh, it's, it, it says, you know, well, let's look at this uh, a bit more carefully because maybe no one else has beyond the authors and whoever critically read their manuscript, which is fine. That's what it's for. Um, but uh, when bad science comes out, like we had with the Surgisphere mess, for example, in a, in a reputable uh, peer-reviewed platform, now it has that imprint, right? Now it says this is likely to be good, solid, and important, right? So actually, I would argue that bad science in a, in a, with a, an imprimatur is more dangerous than bad science without it. Um, I think what happened, particularly last year and, and the last couple of years, and I think we're all still a bit uh, shell-shocked from this experience, is that um, the discussions that we have amongst ourselves happen with a larger audience, right? I'm sure this has been your experience. Um, before uh, January 2020, uh, everyone I discussed with online was a scientist, is still working, or an editor, or someone work, but someone in scientific uh, training. Um, and... And suddenly the public rushed in and they saw all of this and they saw what you uh, and Thomas very clearly identified correctly and the reviewer of your, of your manuscript as good science, which is the critique, uh, the uncertainty, um, but to people who are particularly scared, for example, in a public health emergency, the uncertainty looks uh, like an accusation and it's not, right? So it was, it, this was a, an aspect that was difficult to manage in public because we want to discuss these things. We want to discuss them as a community. Correcting the scientific record, improving civility in scientific exchanges and finding a financially sustainable way forward for open access and open science are all well and good. But whatever happened to the search for autoantibodies against lag three? The project kind of came to a halt. Well, I have to say not quite, because it turns out that we did find people without immunity against LAC3, and this is still unpublished, but I can talk about this. It's, it's a very interesting finding. It turns out that half of these people have a very specific disease that has nothing to do with Alzheimer's they have, or with Parkinson's, and they have lupus. So it turns out that anti-LAC3 immunity is very strongly associated with lupus, and nobody knew that. So this is one of these kind of, uh, I would call, reverse immunology type of uh, studies where you just start with a huge population, you look uh, in an unbiased manner at a lot of people, and then you find completely surprising um, connections. So, so that is a, uh, that is that has developed in a completely different direction, and now there is a rationale also, because what is LAC3? Well, LAC3 may not be the receptor for sinoclein, but one thing, LAC3 is for sure. It is a checkpoint molecule. So uh, it makes sense uh, that if you have autoantibodies that are directed against a checkpoint molecule, 
of course it makes sense that you may develop an autoimmune disease. So this is now very exciting because it also means that, may, um, again, it points to a possible therapy. So you could consider, for example, blocking uh, uh, these antibodies with a mimicry, with a soluble LAC3, for example, to, uh, to ameliorate lupus in, in this subset of patients. So that is, uh, uh, so, so as you see, uh, often uh, our science, uh, particularly when we are doing this kind of unbiased experiments, uh, they lead us to complete completely unexpected directions and then you know when you see a good thing you know you go for it it's uh, it doesn't really matter whether it's not really the core business of a neuropathologist and uh, so that is something that um, we are doing right now and uh, but then we are confronted with the fact that uh, the con that uh, the claim that lac3 is a neuronal receptor of synuclein was uh, well let's put it this way how can it put it diplomatically we wrote in the paper it's not universal let's say it's not universal yeah <laughs> so just to follow up on this on this other story of of the lupus like or the lupus patients a habit from mice so always referred to lupus like but when it's lupus patients it's actually lupus right um so that as you say is more in line with with the classical like three role like three one should also point out is one of the major targets in the next generation of cancer uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors that are currently um, being tested. Although several people have pointed out, because it's also to be expected, even with PD-1, CTLA-4, and we do see autoimmunity and immune pathology, several people have remarked that they wouldn't mind training uh, metastatic lethal uh, lung cancer for uh, rheumatoid arthritis. But let me tell you one additional bit of information that is really fascinating and uh, and also kind of, uh, in a way, exhilarating. The So we found all these lupus patients, no? and then we got very excited. And then we found two patients uh, with high titer against LAC3, and they had melanoma. And this made no sense. I mean, so why melanoma? So they were. So these patients were from the dermatology, of course. So I went uh, to my friend Thomas Kundik, who is the um, chair of, of dermatology in Zurich, and I said, "Look, uh, Thomas. I mean, uh, we have this uh, strange finding. We have uh, two of your melanoma patients uh, have anti-lactrin antibodies." So then he looked into the files. And you know what happened? <laughs> you probably imagine already what the reason was. These patients were enrolled in a, a clinical trial um, uh, sponsored by Lilly, where they were being tested uh, humanized antibodies uh, to LAC3 in the context of anti-melanoma therapy. So of course they had the LAC3 reactivity, but it was therapeutic. Now that is... Uh, for me, really satisfying because it shows that, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an unexpected control. It shows that uh, the method is sensitive, that we can actually find the antibodies if they are there. And the other really interesting thing is that when we looked at the titers, uh, the titers in the patients with the therapeutic antibodies were very similar to the titers in the patients uh, with lupus. So, which means that uh, the, 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 the antibodies uh, correlating with lupus uh, may have really been causative. So we are not talking about uh, traces. We are talking about amounts that are similar to what you get uh, in therapeutic context. Thank you very much, Adriano. We, I don't know if Thomas has any... No, no, I just want to thank you. I, this, you know, as usual, a lot of fun and, and super insightful, you know, where, 
mega grateful that you you spend the time with us. <laughs> and I am grateful for everything that Review Commons is doing. I have to say it's a fantastic initiative, and obviously I am a big customer of yours. <laughs> yes, you 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 get the frequent flyer uh, ticket for sure. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>